some people say they wish they could live in a book. Now I get it, but me personally, there is nothing like film and TV. New worlds, galaxies, unspoken laws and universes to explore. And I love these worlds. I want to go for a walk through Mordor with Frodo. I want to see time and space with Spock. I want to drive a car into a battlefield with Optimus Prime. I am obsessed. I rewatch and track the hidden messages, Easter eggs, and theories that come from these amazing franchises. So sit back, grab your popcorn, and let me take you through the finer details of these incredible stories. I'm T, and welcome to Theories by T. Once upon a time, there was a lovely princess but she had an enchantment upon her of a fearful sort, which could only be broken by love's first kiss. She was locked away in a castle guarded by a terrible fire-breathing dragon. Many brave knights tried to free her from her terrible prison, but none prevailed. She waited in the dragon's keep in the highest room of the tower for her one true love and true love's first kiss. Just not the one she might have expected. Let's talk about Shrek. He's mean, he's green, he's a big scary fart machine, he's Shrek. 2001's animated showstopper, the first animated movie to win in the best animated section of the Oscars, and a franchise that has masterfully stood the test of time with four feature films, two TV specials, two spin-off films, one musical, and a fifth film and third spin-off in the works. But what is it that makes this franchise such an enduring tale? How did the concept of a crude ogre, a wisecracking donkey, and their unconventional fairy tale friends become one of DreamWorks' most iconic pieces of media to date? Let's break it down, starting with the original Shrek. Shrek follows the titular protagonist, an antisocial ogre who lives in a swamp but is constantly bothered due to several fairy tale creatures being relocated and exiled into his home. When he confronts the impish Lord Farquaad to put an end to this, the king offers him a deal to rescue the princess, whom he intends to marry, from a dragon-guarded tower in return for complete isolation of the swamp. Shrek teams up with a talking donkey to rescue the princess, who, as it happens, had a deep, dark secret. I don't know why I'm teasing you as if you haven't seen it. Turns out she's an ogre too. Now, when I say Shrek subverts expectations from Disney, I'm not just speaking in hyperbole. I genuinely mean this film was made as a parody towards Disney. Prolific film producer Jeffrey Katzenberg was a bigwig at Disney, working on all of the 90s classic films, often referred to as the Disney Renaissance period. That's your Lion King, Little Mermaid, Aladdin, pretty much everything that they're turning into live action these days, he was the producer behind all of them. But due to some political disagreements with other Disney execs, namely Michael Eisner and Roy E. Disney, again, I'm not being clever, literally that's Walt Disney's nephew, Katzenberg was forced to resign. Now his resignation just so happened to come at a time where Disney's animated lineup was starting to get a little tired and not really bringing in the cash. Seizing the opportunity, Katzenberg approaches David Geffen and Steven Spielberg, yes, that's Steven Spielberg, to form a new animated-only production company, DreamWorks Animation. Producer John H. Williams approached the trio with a fairy tale book called Shrek, which Spielberg was already familiar with, and they got cooking. They would create a full deconstruction of the fairy tale movie formula that Katzenberg's old company was famous for. 
It's not directly confirmed if the film was made purely out of spite, but many, many people believe that Lord Farquhar was inspired by Michael Eisner. Honestly, the film is more than just a crude parody born from a behind-the-scenes feud. I truly do think Shrek's success and icon status comes from its subversion while still telling a heartfelt narrative. Instead of a funny animated animal sidekick voiced by Eddie Murphy, you had a funny animated animal sidekick voiced by Eddie Murphy. Okay, well Mulan was awesome. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's not to say audiences didn't enjoy the classic Disney fairy tale film, but something to throw audiences off of what we expect is a strategy that works every time. Look at the modern day. We've got so many classic superhero tales from Marvel and DC that when alternate projects that challenge superhero media expectations, like say The Boys, The Watchmen, or Invincible came along, audiences ate that up because it was different. Don't get me wrong, we may have followed that circle all the way back around to the start now, because if I see one more what if Superman was evil story, I am gonna lose it. Just give me a nice Superman, damn it. But still, this was the 2000s. Doing the I'm not like other girls thing in cinema was new. And partnering that while still building a compelling love story and character study is what gave Shrek its legendary status. Now it's time for the top three most iconic scenes of the film. At number three, I've got Shrek and Donkey visiting Duloc. I absolutely adored this scene and everything about it exemplifies why this film was so iconic, because it was an animated film that was proud to be different. The scene opens out the gate with an adult joke, with Shrek saying that Farquaad's huge castle was compensating for something. The whole castle was a funny play on Disneyland and their castle, with the man in the Farquaad mask standing in front of a 45 minute wait line despite nobody being in the queue. I hadn't even been to or possibly even seen Disneyland when I watched this as a kid, but that little information booth that sings, please keep off the grass, shine your shoes, wash your face, had me cackling. And it still does to this day. Although now that I think about it, I probably didn't even know what the omitted word here was, but just the comedic timing of it not rhyming was still funny to me as a child and of course still appealed to the adults. And it just keeps adding on to the idea that this movie is different than others, because whether it makes kid jokes or adult ones, it's just universally hilarious. Some of you may die, but it's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. Hilarious line delivery. When Farquaad looks at Shrek and says, It's hideous! And he says, It's just the donkey. Like, this movie is honestly actually so funny. The scene being a statement point for the franchise's stance of subverting expectations and not conforming to what was expected of family-friendly animated films was maybe no better exemplified by the music. I don't give a damn about my bad reputation. Shrek is a film that doesn't care about its reputation. Its vulgarity is seamlessly woven into its storytelling. It can make the adult jokes and pop culture references like the WWE wrestling in this scene and still be funny for all the family just by being a compelling story that is truly funny. Although this was 2001, so I guess that scene was more of a WWF reference. Number two, I've got Fiona versus The Merry Men. Again, this film is not shy when it comes to subverting the Disney expectations and maybe even unpacking problematic elements of it. Fiona, like your standard Disney princess, runs into the woods and sings to the animals, clearly a nod to Snow White. But then she sings so loudly that the bird explodes. Later, before she is rescued by Robin Hood, she winds up beating the Merry Men herself. Subverting expectation is this movie's bread and butter. 
The scene also subverts expectations by having Fiona rescue herself. She isn't a damsel in distress. In fact, an argument can be made that she never was one. Even in the castle, she chose her solitude so that she could get what she wanted. That kiss. I also just really love that Robin Hood once again tries to go for a musical number, but winds up being smacked down by Fiona. Her combat being a reference to Kung Fu movies, with one shot in particular being pulled from Matrix, the bullet time jump. We're in which a scene freezes in time, but the camera glides through it to show alternate angles. It happens when Neo dodges bullets in The Matrix, which came out just a year before this, and used when Fiona jumps to do her double kick, but of course fixes her hair first. Ugh, and even that, showing that she can be feminine and still kick ass. Truly a film ahead of its time. Before I say my favourite, I'm going to give an honourable mention to the I'm a Believer scene at the end. Again, instead of the theatrical Disney style hit, they gave us a pop rock anthem featuring Eddie Murphy. That this version of the song is not on Spotify will forever be criminal to me. But the best scene of the film for me, and arguably the most important moment, was it the dragon chase scene, the final kiss, gingerbread man's torture? No, it's Shrek and Donkey looking at the stars. The scene is crucial in the character arcs of Shrek, Donkey and Fiona. Shrek and Donkey have finally bonded to a point where they can have a chill conversation. Donkey asks why Shrek is so angry at the world and he admits he's mad because the world is the one that has a problem with him. How many people out there want to pretend like they don't care what other people think of them? Shrek, like many of us, put on a bravado. He scares them away because he doesn't think anyone could accept him based on how he's been treated. They judged a book by its cover. Donkey, however, is living proof that this isn't always the case. He was never afraid of Shrek, because Donkey was in search of the same thing that deep down Shrek didn't think he deserved, companionship. Shrek says, They judge me before they even know me. But Donkey proves to Shrek that this isn't always the case. His simple line, I didn't think you were just a big, stupid, ugly ogre. And Shrek's, Yeah, I know, was a beautiful bonding moment between the two subverting again traditional tropes of the love interest being integral to the male lead story. It's his friend. It's thanks to Donkey, not Fiona, that Shrek throughout the movie learns that he is worthy of love. As for Fiona's arc, well, it's not too different to Shrek. In fact, she learns something from them both. They both revealed who they truly were to each other and found acceptance with each other. Looks didn't matter to them. So she would start to question, why should it matter to me? And you can tell from then on, Fiona starts being nicer to them both. She similarly starts to drop her hypocrisy and projection of judging a book by its cover and instead appreciates them both for who they are. As Shrek says when justifying his ridiculous stories about the stars, sometimes things are more than they appear. Now for some behind the scenes facts, easter eggs and details you might have missed in Shrek. Shrek's outhouse toilet has a crescent moon on it because originally they planned to have the DreamWorks logo, also a moon, fade into that for an opening, but opted against it. The effects department claimed to have actually taken mud showers to get an idea of how best to animate Shrek's opening. Even though Donkey is a hooved creature, his movements are actually based more on a dog or a rabbit. Presumably this was to give him more of a familiar animal sidekick appeal. Kids do love pets. Another animation legend appears in this film as the captain of Farquaad's guards, Jim Cummings. He's the iconic voice of Winnie the Pooh amidst a very long career of work. 
Shrek's line to Donkey, you're going the right way for a smacked bottom, was a reference to Mike Myers' other iconic role, Austin Powers. He says it at the end of Madonna's music video for Beautiful Stranger. Art director Douglas Rogers visited a magnolia plantation in South Carolina to get research on what Shrek's swamp would look like. And while there, he got chased by an alligator. Dedication to the craft for sure. Despite Shrek trying its hardest to subvert Disney musical motifs, after the success of this first film, they turned Shrek into a Broadway musical for a full decade. I never saw it, some people loved it, some hated it, but hey, it won a Tony Award, so it can't have been too bad. As mentioned earlier, Lord Farquaad's kingdom is largely based on Disneyland. Considering the film seemingly was a middle finger to Disney and Farquaad himself was allegedly based on one of their chief execs, this isn't too surprising. In the kingdom, Farquaad is essentially Mickey Mouse. His staff wear giant Farquaad heads, his face is plastered everywhere, and the info booth song seems to riff on It's a Small World. Shrek took four years to animate and was in production on and off for 10 years. 3D animation was something still being experimented on in the 90s, so this isn't too hard to believe. But even the story, concept, and pre-production was really slow going. DreamWorks had a lot of other projects cooking at the same time. Their first ever animated film and real solo movie adventure, Ants, was released only a couple of years before Shrek, not long followed by Prince of Egypt, El Dorado, and Chicken Run. All incredible films, by the way, so you can imagine how this relatively new studio was likely focusing on these ones as opposed to the anti-Disney one about an ogre and a donkey. It's said that due to Shrek's slow process and everyone's lack of faith in it, animators who made mistakes or just didn't do a great job on Prince of Egypt were sent to work on Shrek as a punishment. They called it the Gulag. Yes, there was a time in the 90s where even the people making Shrek thought it would flop. They called it a low-budget boondoggle. So yeah, people listening, if you're ever unsure of your work, see it to completion. You might have another Shrek in your hands. The film is loosely based on a William Stieg book called Shrek, but Shrek with an exclamation point. In it, Shrek is a green-skinned, fire-breathing monster that enjoyed causing misery to others with his ugliness. He's met by a witch who shows him his fortune of meeting a donkey who would guide him to a castle where he'd meet a princess as ugly as him whom he'd fall in love with. He sets out on his quest, meets a donkey guide, fights a dragon, and finds the princess. And the two live horribly ever after, opting to be happy and ugly together and scare anyone who comes across them. Uh, couple goals? So yeah, the movie borrowed some elements, but I guess they saw the problematic nature of just calling yourself hideous and updated it to a more uplifting message of looks don't matter and beauty is subjective. Shrek doesn't have too many deleted scenes, but one does exist that explains Farquaad's final goal was to turn Duloc into a huge supermarket. If that makes no sense to you, that's why it was removed. Although it could have been a commentary on how Disney back then used their films as just avenues to sell merchandise. Good thing they don't do that today, am I right? Smash Mouth's All-Star, though synonymous with Shrek, wasn't supposed to be included in the film. It was a placeholder for test screenings and always meant to be switched out, but audiences responded well and they kept it in. Good, because as I've said before, their pop and rock music choices are integral to the Shrek franchise. Shrek's success actually saved DreamWorks and made it what it is today. It was originally a low-budget mess to the creators, but when it came together as a huge commercial success, this paved the way for other unconventional animated projects. A certain other heavy-set DreamWorks hero would likely not have seen the light of day if it wasn't for Shrek. Kung Fu Panda, I'm talking about Kung Fu Panda. Woo!
Filmed on a $60 million budget, the film was a box office smash, earning two-thirds of that on opening weekend alone, followed by a closing of over $200 million worldwide. And remember, this is 2001, meaning this doesn't even factor in the huge boom in sales a movie can earn through later release on DVD. And remember that because it will be important later when we talk about the box office for the second film. Critics were singing this film's praises due to its excellent animated achievements, impressive voice cast and enjoyable story. Roger Ebert calls it jolly and wicked with sly in-jokes but somehow also possessing heart. Fans call it DreamWorks' greatest achievement to date, only surpassed in the company by its sequel, although in my opinion Kung Fu Panda and How to Train Your Dragon have a fair claim to that spot. It's hard to deny its cultural impact too, Shrek 1 is probably the most quotable of all of the movies. Its marketing branched out into Smash Mouth's music video, merchandising was everywhere, video games, hell Shrek even became an unlockable character in Tony Hawk. The concept of parodying traditional fairy tale tropes was even attempted by competitors like Disney with things like Enchanted, but even that doesn't nearly have the staying power that Shrek holds. Shrek won the first ever Oscar for Best Animated Feature and it had stiff competition that year with Pixar's Monsters Inc. in that same category. Actually, some have linked the two properties as both feature a big monster who deep down has a heart of gold. People assume that Monsters Inc. was made as a retaliation by Disney, but the House of Mouse wouldn't really acquire Pixar until 2006. Still, despite both being iconic childhood classics, there was no denying that with Shrek, DreamWorks had a hit. Overall, I think it's hard to deny the cold hard fact of the matter, Shrek is a cultural icon. A monster of a movie that dominated in awards, box office and pop culture at large. By dissecting what it is that made Disney fairy tales so memorable and then reversing their methods to highlight perhaps the problematic nature of their messaging, they built a story that lets them stand apart from a traditional animated feature. Animation back then was inherently for children and of course that was the target audience but DreamWorks never let that restrict them. The best part of Shrek were the parts that transcend age. It was recognisable and empathetic themes that you could attach to. A woman wanting to feel beautiful but feels that she needs to conform to society's views of what true beauty is. A man realising that there are people out there who could love him for more than his appearance. And in fact, that can even find him beautiful. Its foundational message was simply, don't judge a book, even a storybook, by its cover. People aren't just princesses waiting for princes, silly sidekicks for jokes and one-liners, or monsters and dragons undeserving of affection. People are complex, complicated and wonderful, and are more than their outward appearances. Following movies would build upon this, which we'll get into shortly, but by and large, the first film became a huge landmark moment in animation and Hollywood as a whole, forever. Now let's talk about the sequel, and arguably one of the best sequels in movie history. Man, the last two franchises I talked about also had near-perfect sequels too. Anyway, it's Shrek 2, baby! What's an iconic sequel? The action, the world-building, the music. Oh, you know exactly what I mean when I say music too. I think when people think of Shrek 2, their mind immediately goes to that I need a hero scene. And absolutely fair, it's the best scene of the film by far. And thanks to TikTok and YouTube, you've probably seen that clip go viral hundreds of times over. Whether it's creators like me breaking down why it's so good or fans gushing over it. Honestly though, on a rewatch of this film, it has everything the first film has but elevated and so much more. Shrek 2 expands on themes, offers new and interesting challenges to our characters' personal progressions, and by and large is just as, if not more, funny. 
One of the best things the film expands upon here, in my opinion, was that it was not just a subversion of Disney tropes, it was a call-out and subversion of all of Hollywood. From cinema's beauty standards, having a focal point be unapologetically based in LA, characters riffing on other movie characters, and so much more. Throughout this film's dissection, I'm going to be using this point as the through line as to why Shrek 2 is so iconic. The casting is massively expanded upon here. Antonio Banderas as Puss in Boots, possibly the most iconic new addition to a film franchise in a sequel since Lando Calrissian. Puss has had a tumultuous popularity over the years. He went from cute and awesome in this film, to kind of forgettable in the following, to overdone by meme culture, to gouge my eyes out in a spin-off, but fortunately, most recently, a bona fide badass in The Last Wish. Nevertheless, his iconicness started here and Antonio was a great call. They basically took Antonio from Mask of Zorro and said, Just do that, but add a hint of Mandy Patinkin from Princess Bride and a household kitty cat and boom. Legend. Puss was a clear example of how this film was made as a parody of Hollywood. In fact, parody is the wrong word. Deconstruction is arguably better. If the core theme of the film is challenging beauty standards, what better industry to call out than one that perpetuates said standards? Hollywood. The sexy action star with gorgeous hair that can kick ass and has a disarming accent. But here, Puss embodies a subversion of that. In a sense, he has all of those elements, minus maybe the sexy part, that if this were live action, would certainly be played by Antonio. But then he's a tiny little kitty cat with a somewhat fragile ego. Brilliant, really. Other great casting, you had John Cleese and Julie Andrews as the king and queen. I'll talk later about how these two were always meant to have been this movie's version of Princess and the Frog, a story which also features True Love's Kiss to lift a curse. I really just enjoy this casting because their line deliveries are hilarious. They actually recorded most of their lines together on the same days to enhance their chemistry, which isn't common practice for animated films even to this day. And we can't forget the icon Jennifer Saunders as the fairy godmother. And if you don't mind, I'm going to really go in on the fairy godmother here because she is so integral as to what makes this film so iconic. Fairy godmother is such an interesting character because she is a brilliant antagonist. Her role is to be the living embodiment of everything that I see this film sets out to challenge, the beauty standard. Initially, Godmother appears essentially filling her fairy tale role, to visit sad women and offer them a chance to live out their dreams by making them beautiful. This is applied in Shrek 2 as a negative. Shrek 2 frames Godmother's viewpoints as superficial and uses terminology that we can immediately identify as red flags as a depiction of that. Her lyrics in her intro song say things like cellulite thighs fade away and a nip and a tuck here and there. However, when she sees that Fiona doesn't want this and thanks to her journey in the first film, is not only happy with the way she is, but also found love that way, it sends her into a frenzy. Godmother's ideal, Hollywood's ideal, has been challenged. So her goal, whilst on the surface, is to help give her son a wife, deep down, it's really to re-establish order and maintain the status quo of the beauty standard. Honestly, she does it brilliantly, by not just getting in Fiona's head, but by primarily getting into Shrek's. Throughout the film, Shrek starts doubting his worthiness again. Particularly, he gains the insecurity that Godmother typically exploits. His quest is to seek beauty so that he can be good enough for Fiona. But even this isn't enough for Godmother. Shrek uses the potion, a magical substitute for what is essentially plastic surgery, but thanks to her exploitation, Shrek still isn't happy. 
Godmother pulls strings to ensure that Fiona winds up with Charming. To me, this displays a message that is true to the real life chasing of conventional beauty. That even when you spend time and money chasing it, that doesn't always bring you happiness. Godmother finds unhappy people, tricks them into thinking their unhappiness is due to their appearance, and builds a business of exploiting that insecurity. Man, she's more than just Hollywood, Godmother is the entire beauty industry too. And the gag is that her potion didn't turn Shrek, Donkey and Fiona into what they wanted, it turned them into the beauty standard set by her. Fiona was thin with shiny straight hair, Shrek was bulky and muscular and handsome, and Donkey was a tall mighty steed, all three of them coincidentally also being white. Yes, Shrek wanted to be a Prince Charming, but Fiona didn't want her old white woman form, she was happy as an ogre, she even screams at her human form in the mirror. But it's Godmother who manipulates things because as long as she controls the beauty standard, as long as the movie and beauty industry can maintain that, their business can continue to thrive. Wow, I really didn't think I'd spend so much time dissecting the beauty industry, but here we are. Now let's look at the iconic scenes. At number three, I've simply got the final music performance during the credits, Donkey and Puss singing Living La Vida Loca. Narratively speaking, it's the only song that basically has no thematic link to the characters outside of them just having fun. But honestly, if you get a chance to have Eddie Murphy and Antonio Banderas do a musical duet, I don't care if it's a horror movie, you take that shot. At number two, I'm going to put an actual thematically important scene, the dinner scene. Shrek has arrived at Far Far Away and is intimidated by not being what Fiona's parents expected. It's a great contrast of beauty and class between Shrek and the king. I love the way tension is built here. Shrek struggles to pick which fork to use. He doesn't really know proper table manners. The fire behind him just highlighting the king's rage. This is then enhanced when it's revealed that Fiona's table manners had also slipped over the years with her burping at the table, which also wasn't in the script. Apparently Cameron Diaz just had a coke before the scene. Then Harold implies disgust at the idea of Shrek fathering Fiona's kids, which starts bugging him. And the camera cuts get faster and faster and space between those lines getting shorter. The pretense has dropped, now it's a fight. This is a battle between two men who are defending their position of being what is best for Fiona. The music builds in crescendo, the food is flung all over the table and finally the pig literally flies and its slam on the table concludes the scene. Just cinematically brilliant, climbing and climbing with tension, all the while establishing an important plot point for the film. It turns out that these two are very similar. Harold, like Shrek, wanted to conform to beauty standards to be what's best for his wife. So much so that he sold his soul to the devil, or fairy. And he projects that insecurity onto Fiona. Shrek, initially being a man comfortable with his looks, threatened him. You can almost say Harold was green with envy. And my number one scene in the film, if it wasn't obvious, was Team Shrek storming the castle to I Need a Hero. I don't even know where to start with this scene. It is truly cinematic excellence. The stakes are high. We have a ticking clock and the tension is maximized through the fast paced nature of the action. Shrek's determination to get his wife and save her from the prince is so clear. And the sequence of events leading to this rescue is beautiful. I'll get to the song in a second, but let's break it down. He teams up with his fellow inmates to stage a breakout and break in. Jinji charges Mongo into the castle like a giant kaiju, basically a Power Rangers Megazord gingerbread man, with Shrek riding it like an anime protagonist. Projectiles are coming in from everywhere, they can't get close enough so they need to dismount. They launch into the castle whilst Mongo tragically gets defeated. And for some reason, we felt this. 
we felt for a giant gingerbread man we had just met. And if the action isn't enough, this is all intercut with the dance sequence between Charming and Fiona, which we know that when it's done, will end with that final kiss. But Fiona, growing wise, extends the dance with the rose in her mouth, which she doesn't realise, but we, the audience, knows by Shrek a bit more time. One by one, his allies get picked off. Mongo, Pinocchio, Puss in that brave sacrifice. I watch this scene now as an adult, even more invested than I was in 2004. For my anime fans, this is very specific, this was a 2004 version of the Sasuke retrieval arc from Naruto. And of course, it is all backed with Jennifer Saunders' cover of I Need a Hero. Oh, no movie has made better use of this song. The scene is also followed by a great action sequence of the fairy tale creatures teaming up to take down Godmother, which I also love on a symbolic level. All of these freaks defeating the embodiment of the beauty standards. Brilliant, perfect, no notes, just truly a perfect sequence. And now let's look at some behind the scenes facts, easter eggs and details that you might have missed from Shrek 2. This movie, of course parodying Hollywood, was unsurprisingly flooded with movie references. You had Puss in Boots, of course being a reference to Zorro from Mask of Zorro, both starring Antonio Banderas. The mermaid Shrek accidentally kisses on the beach bears a striking resemblance to Ariel from The Little Mermaid. Fiona's wedding ring flying and falling perfectly on her finger was a reference to Frodo in Lord of the Rings. Pinocchio's dive in to rescue the gang was a Mission Impossible dive that even Hunt often performs. The royal invitation to Far Far Away shows one band member playing the tune of Hawaii Five-O. When arriving in Far Far Away, Donkey says, It's champagne and caviar dreams from now on. This was a line pulled directly from Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. The entrance to Far Far Away closely resembles the Paramount Pictures film lot, and the city was an unsubtle depiction of LA, and I've been there a few times, it was mad accurate. If the palm trees weren't enough, I also caught a few shops like Farbox on every corner, Gap Queen, Burger Prince, Versace, Old Knavery, and Baskin Robin Hood. A kid is selling star maps, which is typically sold in LA to show the homes of celebrities. When Jinji makes Mongol, he says, It's alive! A reference to Frankenstein, and his loud footsteps, shaking two cups of coffee, resemble the T-Rex approaching in Jurassic Park, where we see the two cups of water also shaking. During Godmother's first song, when she tells Fiona she could marry a fine prince, we see a picture of the then prince, and of course now king, Charles. When Shrek is hanging upside down, Fiona approaches him, and we get a slight easter egg to the Spider-Man upside down kiss. Except this time, it's the female character that's the hero. By the way, if you want to hear me talk about the whole damsel in distress motif in Spider-Man, you can go ahead and check out episode 1 of this very podcast. When Shrek and Donkey are on the run from the knights, who in this case were the cops, the movie is animated to look like the hit show Cops, and is very similar to the 1994 OJ Simpson car chase, where he's also driving a white Bronco. I can tell you the cops planting catnip on puss like it was contraband is something I never would have caught as a kid, but was hilarious. When we visit Fiona's bedroom, we see she has a poster just above her bed of a Sir Justin, clearly a riff on Justin Timberlake, seemingly from his NSYNC era. I'm not sure why Justin Timberlake is so significant in the Shrek franchise, as he also voices Artie in Shrek the Third. They hinted that King Harold was a frog the whole time from the very beginning. Early in the film, the Queen says that they had a date by the Lily Pond, a place that frogs often frequent. Lillian also doesn't question or seem shocked about the reveal of him being a frog, implying that she's taken on the role of the princess and the frog, kissing him to make him human. Also, 
Lillian, lily pads, you get the connection. The film was of course a huge box office smash, hitting a combined $950 million worldwide and remained in the top spot until being dethroned by another film in this podcast series, Spider-Man 2, released the same year. I'm telling you, sequels man. But it did maintain the title of highest grossing animated film ever for six years until the monster that is Toy Story 3 dropped. Also, with the DVD and merchandise sales, the film would pick up an extra $800 million. For the record, the movie was made on a budget of $150 million. That's how integral DVD and merchandising was to the industry back in the day. And at some point later in this series, I really want to discuss where that all changed because it's so interesting. Critically, Shrek 2 sits at an 89% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes and a surprising 69% audience score. Yes, while critics addressed that the film wasn't as fresh as the original, they still applaud its comedy, action and heightened themes. However, despite a flurry of nominations, Shrek 2 didn't take home big wins during award season, but in its defence, The Incredibles is pretty stiff competition. 2004 was just an awesome year for films overall. In conclusion, Shrek 2 is a depiction of a perfect sequel doing everything a good sequel should. It expands the world established in the first film, carries over the humour that we enjoyed from it, but also explores new angles to look at themes proposed in said first film. Beautifully taking the idea of being loved for who you are on the inside and asks what happened when that security of your own self-image is challenged externally due to the world's beauty standards. Telling that message through the lens of Hollywood and the beauty industry as a whole, I thought was remarkable. All of this, along with more great music, exciting action, and just more creativity in the expanded media. Looking at you, Shrek 2 video game on the PS2 and Far Far Away Idol on the DVD release. I, I love you. All of these things made Shrek 2 truly iconic. Shrek the Third. Okay, this is where the franchise, in my opinion, and most of the world's opinion, takes a little dip. Okay, a big dip. But as usual with this podcast, I always want to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. So let's do this. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I love this movie. I didn't. But I actually think it's important to talk about because all the things this movie did wrong is exactly what the others did right that make this franchise as a whole so iconic. Shrek the Third was, on paper, not a terrible idea. In fact, as a concept, I feel like it could have and should have worked. In this film, King Harold is dying and Shrek and Fiona are next in line for the throne. Shrek doesn't want to be king, so he sets out to find Fiona's cousin Artie to take the throne instead. Why couldn't Fiona or Lillian serve as queen alone and Shrek be like a duke or something, considering she was more of a capable queen anyway? Patriarchy, I guess. All the while, Prince Charming seizes the opportunity to recruit an army of villains so he can usurp the throne. This isn't a terrible concept. In fact, if it was pitched to me, I'd be down to see it. The fact that Artie was clearly based on King Arthur and it would involve Merlin the Magician and all that good stuff, this actually sounds like an awesome film. Even the subplot of Puss and Donkey switching bodies. This is gold actually, in fact I did enjoy the element of it. The reason I think this one just doesn't hit home is Shrek himself. In the last two movies, Shrek has pretty clear character motivations and goes through significant arcs. He first learns that he is worthy of love despite his looks, if he were to just open his heart and let people in, and in the sequel he has to challenge his insecurities of not being the ideal beauty standard for his wife in the eyes of society and has to claim back his confidence in who he is. But in this film, Shrek's arc is basically that he doesn't want any responsibility. It's just hard to empathise with him on this one. 
Another element of the film that is integral to Shrek's arc that they beat you over the head with is Shrek's fear of becoming a father. Again, not a bad arc for him to go on, except it just comes across as hollow and out of character. Shrek's always been a dad-like person. He's protected his friends, particularly the small ones, and as far as being king, he's never shied away from leadership or heroism before. I guess there's a good arc of Shrek learning fatherhood through his relationship with Artie, but it's still quite bland. It also just doesn't have much going for it in the way of comedy. While the last two movies had vulgarity, the comedy was always clever. This film overkills that. King Harold's death should have been sad and somber, but instead he has this comedic drawn out choking sequence, coupled with a performance of Live and Let Die at his funeral and his body put in a shoebox? What? First of all, the last two films may have had pop songs, but they all serve the purpose in the grand scheme of things. Live and Let Die, aside from having the word die in the title, serves nothing in the way of the narrative or characters in this moment. It's a Bond song. I also think they learned the wrong lesson from what made the last sequel work. Shrek 2 worked by expanding upon the themes of its predecessor. This third film tried too hard to just do what that film did. Far Far Away being based on Hollywood and that film's constant movie references worked in the context of that film and its subversion of expectations. This film wasn't really trying to subvert much outside of Artie not being right for the throne. College and high school references don't add anything to the story here. Antonio Banderas cast as Puss in Boots was an intentional reference to Zorro. Why is Justin Timberlake cast as Artie? What is Artie supposed to add outside of a projection of a son for Shrek? In fact, that's the film's worst offence. What's it trying to do? If the first film was a commentary and subversion of Disney tropes, and the second on Hollywood and beauty, what does this film set out to achieve? I'll answer. In my opinion, it's a cash grab. More Shrek meant more money, more brand deals, and so the answer was for the film to just do more, more, and more. The only thing that saves it for me are Puss and Donkey, who carry all of the humour, but outside of that, I truly barely even remember Shrek the Third. But that's enough of the bad, let's have some fun here, let's talk behind the scenes facts and easter eggs. I didn't mention this for the last film, but Prince Charming is actually voiced by Rupert Everett, who is a descendant of a British King of England, Charles II. While Queen Lillian's voice actor, Julie Andrews, was made a dame by Queen Elizabeth II. So many royal connections in this film. Shrek's dream of hundreds of babies swarming him is pulled from the Shrek storybook that the franchise is based on. In it, he has a nightmare slash premonition of deformed babies hugging and kissing him all over. But this turned out to be a vision of him walking through a hall of mirrors. This is less of an easter egg and just an interesting casting that Lancelot was actually voiced by the Office star, John Krasinski. During the high school scenes, we hear a band version of All Star by Smash Mouth, the big hit attached to the first movie. This was a recording of an actual school band for authenticity, and the cheerleaders dance was based on an actual local school's cheer team. When Charming's men try to break into Fiona's baby shower, the Cyclops rides the log that rams the door. This was a reference to Dr. Strangelove, where Slim Pickens does the same. And Gingy's life flashing before his eyes is a reference to a similar scene in Six Million Dollar Man, and even uses the same theme music. The film opened to a great box office result initially, starting with 120 million on opening weekend, the highest opening day for an animated film at the time, and ended on a solid $813 million worldwide, not far off its predecessor. But DVD comparison wasn't quite as strong with an estimated $100 million. That should be a pretty good indicator that while being the follow-up to a great two movies may have got people to buy tickets, the quality of the film itself did not inspire many people to want to take it home. 
Shrek the Third has a 41% Rotten Tomato score, with critics calling it out for its abundance of pop culture references and sight gags at the expense of heart or charm. Fans are equally not loving it with a 54% audience score, with the consensus being that this is easily the worst Shrek film. So what went wrong? How did DreamWorks let their biggest IP fall through the mud like this? Well, I think it's pretty clear they chased cash more than story. It's a tale as old as time itself. A movie franchise has a great opening movie, earns absurd amounts of money and popularity in its sequel. So with dollar signs in their eyes, studios force creators to make a follow-up film by taking superficial elements of what they think fans liked from the previous ones and just amplify that. Throw in some extra characters for toy sales, make a couple of good action set pieces, and litter it with pop music and real-world homages with no heart and just hope for the best. Its fundamental flaw was that Shrek became less of a commentary on Hollywood tropes, and this time not a commentary on anything. It was references for references sake, toilet humour and sight gags not to subvert the clean nature of animated family films, but just for a cheap laugh. Thankfully though, this all gets rectified in the fourth and final film, Shrek Forever After, as well as in Puss in Boots and The Last Wish. I will not talk about the other Puss in Boots movie because that was equally really bad. And that wraps up another episode. And before you angry DM me or tweet me, yes, I know I should probably talk about Shrek Forever After, the Puss in Boots movies, maybe some of the short films and director TV films and all of that good stuff. But honestly, there is just so much in the world of Far, Far Away that I just can't cover it all in one podcast. Shrek Forever After I did enjoy, though I can't deny it is still a massive drop in quality from the first two films. It's significantly better than Shrek the Third, but that is not a very high bar to cross. I think the animation in Forever After is almost the best of the franchise had Puss and Moose The Last Wish not come out. And in general, the whole film is back on form in terms of comedy. But the narrative itself I just found quite lackluster. Generally, a lot of this sort of changing time, changing history stuff is never really my favourite type of story. That's just me personally. So yeah, while I could do a full dissection on that, I feel like it would just be a mixture of the praises of the first two films as well as all the things that the third one did wrong mixed into one film. As for the Puss in Boots movies, honestly, Puss in Boots Last Wish was so fantastic that both of these movies probably deserve a podcast on its own because that first one was not great and I don't know what happened here that makes these so different. But if you want to hear more on any of those things, then drop it in the comments and let us know. You can tweet me, you can DM me, you can contact me in any way, you know, social media. Overall, like many of you, I love the Shrek franchise. Yes, I love Shrek 1 and 2, but also everything around it. The Shrek video games I had on Game Boy, on PS1, I'm pretty sure I had one on PS2 as well. I had Shrek 2 on DVD, and yes, I was spamming Shrek Far Far Away Idol. The Shrek clothing, the unlockable character in Tony Hawk, Shrek toys, the McDonald's toys, all of that good stuff. Shrek has seeped this way deep into pop culture, and you cannot deny its iconic impact on Hollywood. So yes, while I can't say that this is a perfect franchise all the way through, there's not many franchises that can hold that title. And honestly, none of that changes the fact that Shrek is an icon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Theories by T in partnership with Sky Cinema. I've been Sorrel, and if you want to dive back into these, then you know the drill by now. Head over to Sky Cinema. Shrek 1, 2, the 3rd, and a whole load of other DreamWorks bangers are available for you to enjoy. So get out of my swamp and jump into Sky Cinema now. And let me know your thoughts. I don't think many would argue my takes on the first two, but are there any Shrek the 3rd loyalists out there? And tell me, if not Shrek, then what is DreamWorks' best franchise? Until then, follow me on all my socials at Theories by T and come back for the next episode. And that's the tea.